Coming up today, Vicky takes a look at the wild rise of Zoom, Amit fills up on discount fast food, and Natasha explains the hygiene theatre coming to a workplace near you. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me today are Amit Katwala. Hello. Natasha Bernal. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hi. This was the week when TikTok announced plans to build a $500 million data centre in Ireland to store data generated by European users. User data is currently stored in the United States and backed up in Singapore. The move comes as Microsoft makes its move to buy up TikTok's operations in the United States, Canada, Australia and New Zealand following a threat by US President Donald Trump to ban the app which is currently owned by Chinese firm ByteDance. This leads neatly into my uh, news this week. Donald Trump said his government should get a cut from the sale of TikTok's US arm if an American firm buys it. The US president said he made a demand for a substantial portion of the purchase price in a phone call at the weekend with Microsoft's boss, who is in talks to buy it. He also warned that he will ban the app, which is owned by China's ByteDance, on September 15 if there is no deal. This was also the week when SpaceX successfully tested an uncrewed prototype of its Starship vehicle, launching it into the sky for 40 seconds before landing it safely on its legs. Elon Musk's ultimate goal for the Starship craft is to ferry people to the moon and, of course, Mars. And finally, this was the week when Disney announced that the live-action remake of Mulan would be released for streaming at home in a blow for cinema chains uh, in the UK and in the US. Disney Plus subscribers can rent the film for $30 from September the 4th in a move that could change the movie landscape forever. That is if people are willing to spend $30 or £20 to rent a film to watch at home. Is anyone here going to pay up? No. (laughs) I think the calculation is different if you have a family and it would cost you, you know, three or four times more than that to go to the cinema, you know, in person. I I think it becomes quite a different calculation at that point. That's true, but I think at a time where people are looking to break up the monotony of being at home an awful lot, I'm not sure if just watching another thing on the TV has quite the allure that Disney assumes it has. And it'll be interesting to see because this is the first time that a genuine big blockbuster has essentially gone straight to DVD. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Disney says it's a one-off uh, and it's not going to be their model going forward. But I think if it goes well, then it could be, you know, cinemas have always been really, really careful to protect that kind of 70 or 80 day window of exclusivity that they have. Uh, if that goes, then then it could be a real kind of game-changing moment for the industry. And it always had to be Disney that was going to make a move like this, right? Because it owns the whole chain. It owns the film, the rights, the streaming platform, the distribution, everything. So it can take the biggest cut of this. So if it is successful, then it's potentially a real seal of approval for everything that Disney's ploughed into Disney+. Plus. Yeah, and it has the clout to, you know, I think in the past cinema chains would have, you know, said, well, if you're going to do this, then we're not going to work with you on, on future releases. But, you know, Disney's so huge and a cinema can't exactly say, oh, well, we're not going to release the next Marvel film in theatres because you've done this. So, you know, they don't really have any leverage on over Disney. Uh, and yeah, as you say, they've got the... Disney Plus is growing in popularity so much that that they're the only people that could have done this. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, let us know your thoughts. Are you going to be forking out $30 or whatever your local currency is to watch Mulan at home? Is this the future of cinema or is it just a one-off during unprecedented times? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Natasha, what did you learn this week? So um, I was thinking a lot about the year that we live in. 2020 has been completely dire. I think we can all agree on that. But here's a question for you all. What was the worst year in history to be alive? Is this subjective or objective? It's, uh, well, I suppose it could be subjective, but there is an objective answer, which I'm going to get at. <laughs> so take it's, your guess. The answer, is, the answer is 2020. It's been bloody awful. No, it's not 2020. Amit, do you want to have a guess? No. <laughs> no, no. Vicky, you're not my only hope. Well, I, th- I kind of think like the further you go back in history, the worse it would be. Like imagine living, living like 
without fire <laughs> or something <laughs> or like you know being eaten by a mammoth um or maybe like more recently world war one was pretty bad like 1916 battle of the somme yeah, yeah. well that that's it's you're closer um historically to to the truth but um actually the worst year to be alive was the year 536 um, according to historian Michael McCormick, that was the worst year to be alive because a mysterious fog plunged Europe, the Middle East and parts of Asia into darkness day and night for 18 months. For the sun gave forth its light without brightness like the moon during the whole year, wrote historian Procopius. Temperatures fell to 2.5 degrees in the summer, initiating the coldest decade in the past 2,300 years. Snow fell that summer in China, crops failed, people starved. There was a failure of bread in Ireland from the years 536 to 539. And then, if you survived that, which loads of people didn't, there was the bubonic plague. So it gives you a bit of perspective, I guess, that, you know, things are really bad right now. But imagine... But we still have the sun. Yeah, there's, there's something. <laughs> there it is, up there in the sky. Uh, what did you learn this week, Amit? Uh, I learned that hibernating animals still need to sleep uh, in some cases. So hibernation and sleep are actually quite distinct biological things. And, and some animals uh, come out of hibernation to catch up on sleep, basically. Vicky, I'm depending on you to continue the animal fact vibe. Yes, I have a, a positive animal fact, my favourite type of animal fact, um, about beavers. So beavers have this week been officially allowed to stay in England for the first time in 400 years. The beaver was extinct across Britain, but it's now been successfully reintroduced in a pilot project. And the government has said that the beavers are welcome to stay. They were basically testing to see whether it would be good for the environment or not to keep them. Uh, but they've said, yep you essentially have um, a right to remain. And somewhat ironically, the, the beavers live in Devon on the River Otter. Is there a change.org petition to rename the River Otter the River Beaver? We could start one. There should be. Amit, sorry. What would, what would they have done if they had not been given right to remain? <laughs> They'd like, have collected they the beavers and, and taken them somewhere else, I imagine. <laughs> to <Deported> them. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, reintroducing species, even if they want, once used to be native somewhere, it can be a bit of a, a, a dicey process. You don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be on other species in the area and things like that. Um, so I guess they were just tracking to, to check there weren't any um, unforeseen negative outcomes. It's been going on for about five years, this project, um, and they've decided the beavers are safe to remain. Go beavers. It's good to know that they didn't end up in the beaver version of Jarl's Wood. Um, I learned this week that sunglasses can trace their history back to China in the 12th century, at least as we think of them today. So back then, judges used sunglasses made of smoky quartz to conceal their facial expressions while questioning witnesses. Before then, sunglasses were um, used to look at the look at the sun, very, very thin slits in solid um, frames uh, so you could gaze at the sun gods but the Chinese were the first to use them to protect the eyes back in the 12th century. Our first story this week is well it's how we're recording this podcast it's probably how you've seen most of your friends and family for several months through the worst of lockdown and even since then. It's the story of Zoom Vicky and how it got so big and where it goes next. Yes. So in lockdown, many of us, including the Wired team, of course, had to suddenly switch to remote working. And in our new print issue, which is out this week, we look at the future of the workplace post-COVID and particularly this question of whether we'll be working remotely long term or if it's just a temporary switch while we deal with the virus. And obviously for one company, the pivot to video conferencing was a huge boon to business Yes, Zoom. Its users rose dramatically as lockdown started to kick in around the world and it suddenly became a household name. So I looked at some of the challenges along the way and what this all might mean for the future of the workplace longer term. You can kind of get a measure of its success. It's done that thing that so few technology companies do. It's become a verb. I'll Zoom you. But how successful has it become in actual terms? 
Yeah, you're right. It really is that kind of coveted brand to verb transition. Uh, you know, people don't say, oh, shall we video conference? They say, shall we Zoom? Sometimes even if they're not actually using Zoom. Um, so although it has become much more well known now, Zoom was actually perfectly successful before this year. Uh, it's not a new company. It's not a startup. It was founded by Eric Yuan, it, who's also its CEO in 2011. And it actually went public in 2019. So last year. But when the pandemic hit this year and many offices had to suddenly switch to remote work, it started gaining users rapidly. To give a figure around that, in April, it reported a peak of 300 million meeting participants in one day. To put that in perspective, last December, it had 10 million. So that's a huge jump up. Um, now, that was a peak. I think it, it subsequently went down a little bit because, you know, April was when a lot of people, particularly in Europe and the US, were, were just adjusting to lockdown and getting very enthusiastic about uh, Zooming everyone in their contacts. I think maybe for a lot of people that habit slowed down a little bit. Um, but it's still, you know, obviously a huge increase. Um, other video meeting tools also saw a boost in popularity. It wasn't just Zoom. So things like Google Meet, Microsoft Teams. But Zoom was the one that really seemed to capture the attention of people. And it did have sort of that steepest growth in those daily meeting participants. Why that was is hard to say. Some of the people I spoke to suggested it could be down to some of its features. So things like allowing you to see everyone else on the screen, uh, digital backgrounds. A lot of other tools now have these features or had some version of them. The fact that it also lets you join for free um, also certainly would help. Um, and it maybe just had better marketing or something like that. Uh, the press kind of picked up on Zoom quite a lot early in lockdown. And it's also just very simple. You know, it does one thing, video calling, and it, it keeps that very simple. I think you can see that probably in the range of people who started using it during lockdown. It is aimed at enterprises. Um, you know, it's aimed at business customers. But we saw people using Zoom for all sorts of things and really extended across demographics. Um, you know, people who might normally be, might not normally be so tech savvy or interested in using a tool like this adopted it. Yeah, I think for me, uh, the thing with Zoom is it's just really frictionless. It's really easy to use. Like you just have to click on the link. You don't really have to install anything you don't want to and you don't... Um have to like fiddle around trying to find the right settings it's just very intuitive uh, especially compared to like some other you know some of the other software as you mentioned are just really difficult to use and really clunky because they just try and do too many things at once like teams just tries to be everything at once and it's just quite confusing as a result whereas Zoom's really streamlined um so you, the, these numbers you mentioned kind of growing like 30 fold between december and april how did they kind of deal with this huge influx of new users well, I spoke to someone on the tech team who said that their main priority was basically to keep things running, uh, you know, when you've got so many new users coming in. And their experience kind of tracked the spread of the virus. They first noticed an uptick in use in China um, and then across Europe and the US as the coronavirus spread worldwide. Uh, and because Zoom is cloud-based, it, it was quite well positioned to scale. They just had to essentially access more cloud. Um, so they went to, you know, Amazon cloud services and things like that, as well as their own servers. Um, and the main challenge really for the team was because everything happened so quickly. Suddenly there was inundated with people, individuals, businesses. They were doing a lot of work with schools and things like that who wanted it and wanted it immediately. So there was a sudden kind of big push on support tickets, customer service queries, all that kind of thing. And of course, at the same time, Zoom staffers were also being affected by COVID-19. So the company's headquarters is in California, which was bringing in stay at home measures. Um, so, you know, it, it was a difficult time for all involved, really. Um, but after that initial uh, kind of influx, the main focus was very much on security. So you probably remember seeing quite a few news stories about Zoom security earlier this summer. There were quite a few going around. One of the big ones was around Zoom bombing. Uh, so that's when people kind of crash Zoom meetings, sometimes sharing explicit imagery or shouting abuse. Uh, and there was also concern over things like encryption. And so Zoom announced a three month period where it said, OK, we're just going to focus on security, nothing else. So some of the issues that Zoom had at that time was it's quite basic, really, when you think about it. It didn't have passwords implemented as default on any of its Zoom calls. You know, people were able to kind of crash if they could guess um, the digits of, of a meeting. They could just go into it without any anything blocking them from doing that. It seemed like quite basic mistakes. 
but I suppose three months I mean how, how did they actually do um on the whole building it up again and making sure that it stayed safe um for, for people that were using it yeah I think you're you're right with that assessment really um so a zoom um advisor told me that you know one of the main problems re- really was that they were used to working with companies and businesses that have these sort of security protocols in place and are used to things like enabling passwords and things like that. But when Zoom suddenly became more mainstream, it had to deal with kind of a whole new type of customer. Um, and it was working very much, you know, direct to consumer, which wasn't really its model. Um, so people were doing things like, you know, sharing their Zoom IDs and passwords on social media, which obviously then makes it really easy to access that Zoom meeting, even if you're not an intended guest. Um, and so it was a bit of a different different um, uh, different use case. Um, but several security experts I spoke to said that um, the company's commitment to security and like taking this time to address those issues was very promising, especially from a company of that, that size. And it hired a lot of people and advisors to, to work on these issues and did seem to, to take it seriously. Um, and as you say, Natasha, some of the fixes were really quite simple, you know, things like bringing passwords in as default, uh, enabling waiting rooms, which is where, you know, people are kind of put in one space before they're allowed to enter the actual meeting, um, just help to prevent this Zoom bombing phenomenon. Um, so, so yeah, it did, it did make kind of changes on that side. One of the, the issues was around encryption. Uh, so the, the main furor there was that Zoom was basically incorrectly calling its encryption end to end when it wasn't. Uh, so someone I spoke to said, you know, this is basically a bit of an own goal. Um, it has now changed its encryption uh, and you can now use end to end encryption if you're using the Zoom client, if you enable it. Uh, one of the problems here again was uh, because you can access Zoom by a phone line, you can dial in. You can't actually end to end encrypt that. They can only do it within the Zoom client. So there were some sort of specific issues around this, um, but that they have kind of come up with various fixes. Obviously, I don't expect, um, you know, security and privacy issues to go away completely. Um, and I'm sure we'll hear more about them in future. But it was that sort of initial, I think, it, you know, as more people were joining the service, suddenly there were these the, these maybe quite obvious things that they, they realized they should probably be doing by default. A huge reason for Zoom's sudden popularity was how quickly people had to change. So, so many businesses, one day you're in the office, the next day you're working remotely and here we are four or five months later and we're still working remotely. And that might be the case for a lot of businesses for years to come or maybe even permanently in a, in a flexible working kind of way. But post-pandemic, are we still going to be working in this very, very Zoom-heavy way? Or is there a general feeling that this is going to fade away once we get on top of the pandemic? Yeah, as you can imagine, there's a lot of mixed opinions on this. Um, so I spoke to one company, GitLab, uh, which is all remote and it's been all remote since well before the pandemic and is really an advocate for this uh, work from anywhere model. So they have employees all around the world. People can work from home or they can work from a co-working space if they prefer. And, um, you know, it's a company of more than a thousand people, which is managed this way. They say actually the main problem is not remote working. It's the time zone differences if you have employees across the world. So they have um, a very uh, comprehensive handbook on the digital tools that their teams can use to stay in touch, Zoom being one that they rely on heavily. Um, and I think, yeah, the main issue that they find is just making sure that teams can pick up in different time zones when, when not everyone's online at the same time. But many people don't think that the future is all remote to that extent, at least not for now. Uh, and they think we'll end up with more of a hybrid model. So people working some days in the office, some days at home. And I think certainly as we approach kind of a phased return to work at the moment, that's what we'll see because a lot of offices are limiting the number of staff that can be in at one moment, you know, saying like, oh, only 50% of the desk can be occupied or something. Uh, so people will be going in a little bit, but not the whole time. They'll be staying home a little bit, but still expected to go in sometimes. I think essentially this big experiment that we were all thrown into has shown that maybe some of the ways we used to work are, are not necessary or not the most efficient. And it's perhaps also opened employers' eyes to the option of remote work uh, or flexible work, which maybe had, you know, used to have a little bit of a stigma attached to it in some circles. 
now no one can pretend that they haven't thought about remote working because they've all been forced to. And I think that will change the conversation. Where we'll end up, I think, is less of a settled question. I think what you said about efficiency is really interesting because, yeah, like the way we used to work maybe wasn't the most efficient, but I actually think we've maybe gone too far the other way where things that used to be a phone call are now a Zoom meeting. You, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's so many things that I do now where I'm like, I don't think this actually needs to be a Zoom meeting because there's just have been a phone call. We seem, Phone calls seem to have just disappeared as a means of communication for me anyway. Um, but I mean, do you think Zoom is like a good substitute for an in-person meeting, actually? I mean, obviously, we've been kind of forced into it, but going forward, is, is it, are you really getting as much out of it as you would if you were in the same room? I think most people would say that a Zoom meeting is not the same as an in-person meeting. Um, and there's several kind of key things that come up here. So one is, you know, the idea of turn taking. You can't really talk over each other on a Zoom call which I never realized how much I sort of did before <laughs> having to switch to Zoom. Um, you know, and that can have effects on how workers engage with each other. So things like, you know, it may be biased towards people who are more confident in putting their point across. You know, if you're like not 100% sure about raising your hand or, or, you know, you're not that confident in the point that you're going to make, maybe you just won't bother saying it because it takes more effort to say, hang on, let me have my turn on the Zoom call rather than in a meeting where you can just sort of like, you know, quietly mention it or something. Um, so I think, you know, there is an issue there of um, the dynamic changing in the workplace. There's also things like eye contact. You can't make eye contact on a Zoom call. The only way um, to make eye contact is to look directly at your camera, at which point you're not looking at the person. <laughs> so that way, you know, the person that you're speaking to has the impression that they're, that you have eye contact, but you are denying yourself that. Um, and eye contact, you know, it's pretty important for conversation. It's, there's a reason we do it, right? And I, and I think that that's an interesting one to think about how we connect digitally. Um, other issues like, you know, you can only see a person's head. You can't see their whole body. So you can't see all their gestures and things like that. Just gives us less information to read a person. Um, so I think there are, the, the, there are these sort of differences between video calls and in-person meetings. Maybe we'll adjust to them a bit. Maybe we'll get used to them. Um and one of the, the key problems around that, which I sort of hinted at earlier as well, is, is that potential for bias. So one researcher I spoke to, Karen Moser, she said that, you know, biases against people can potentially become stronger through video. Because if you're only seeing someone in the context of a video meeting, you're not having that kind of little bit of contact with them as they walk to the meeting room or, you know, as you meet at the water cooler, you maybe um, are more prone to stereotyping them based on things like, you know, age, gender, ethnicity, um, or their job role. Um, and so I think that's also something that employers in particular need to consider when they're setting up their new workplace. You know, what are the impacts of this going to be and are they going to be unfairly distributed in some way? Just a tiny little thing that I find deeply odd about almost all Zoom meetings is I never remember having an in-person meeting with someone where the last 10 seconds of it were us frantically waving at each other in a tiny box until someone can find the end meeting thing. It seemed, it's, you'd think that we would have gotten better at ending these damn things after five months, but still it feels like so many interviews that I have with people, meetings that we have as a team, all ends with a good proportion of us waving in little boxes. How do you want to end Do you want to just stare at the camera so they can see your eye contact? <laughs> <laughs> it was deeply weird when Vicky started staring into her camera yeah, to make a point. It was like she could see us. It was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is very funny how everyone abruptly leaves the Zoom call, isn't it? It's, you know, everyone's suddenly disappearing, just like with a little wave or something. And then if you're kind of one of the last ones left, you're like frantically trying to find the leave button so that you're not the last one. I don't know why. It's like, it doesn't matter if you're the last one, but it's that sort of panicked moment of like, oh, oh I don't want to be the last one out. <laughs> So what, what do you think, Vicky, after spending a, a decent amount of time reporting this feature and speaking to a lot of people who have use remote working or flexible working and an awful lot of people at Zoom that are building new functionality into the platform. What does the future look like? Is it hybrid? Is it invariably going to be some sort of fudge? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think there's like positives and negatives to all of the models. You know, I can see how an all remote model is attractive. Um, one of the issues you avoid with that is this problem of um, people perhaps uh, favoring those who are in the office 
versus those who are at home. So studies in the past have shown that, you know, people who are working in the office are more likely to be promoted than those working remotely and things like that. So again, it's like an an incidence of bias potentially creeping in. Um, And with all remote as well, you, you potentially have that freedom to, you know, work elsewhere, you know, this dream of, oh, I'm going to move to the countryside and, and just log on to my computer from anywhere. Whereas the hybrid approach could potentially be the worst of both worlds in that respect. You know, you still have to live close enough to the office to be able to go in when you're needed. Um, but you're also working remotely sometimes. The advantage, however, is, you know, that flexibility, probably a lot greater than some people did have. And I think it comes down a lot to how employee employers enable this you know are you really allowing your employees to work flexibly or are you just saying they have to work remote I think there's a really important distinction to draw there you know if you're working remotely do you still need to be online nine to five or could you potentially adjust your hours to be more suitable to you maybe you have to pick up the kids from school or something like that maybe you want to attend a gym class in the middle of the day does it really make a difference Um, and so I think It really does come down to how people put this into practice. And the problem with this happening in the context of a global pandemic is, you know, people are having to make these decisions very quickly and are potentially just having to kind of, as you say, fudge it, James, (laughs) rather than think carefully about what is the best way to plan this out. Um, So, yeah, I imagine we are going for that hybrid approach. Um, I think, you know, a lot of companies will maybe have realised Uh, our employees can work perfectly safely from home we could maybe cut down on the amount of office space that we're paying for which is always one of the biggest costs Um, and also a lot of our employees want this I think where it becomes a problem is when it's sort of mandated rather than an option because lots of people don't necessarily have a good place to work from home you know maybe they're in a flat share with lots of other people maybe they don't have a decent desk space maybe they've got children at home who are distracted and and so for some people, actually going into the office is a real perk. And I could actually imagine a, a future where, you know, even having an office becomes a real uh, workplace perk or a benefit because, you know, working remotely can be good when it's when it's a choice. But when it's not a choice, it can be very bad. Head to wired.co.uk forward slash magazine to read the feature on Zoom. And it's best read in print. Um, There's a subscribe link there. You can subscribe to Wired for the low, low price of £2 per issue as part of a special trial offer that we're doing. It's well worth taking us up on. And let us know what the mid to long term looks for you and your working life. Podcast at wired.co.uk with how you're changing your working habits and practices as we move into the next phase of this pandemic. Our second story is related in a lot of ways, Natasha. It's about the return to the workplace and the need for everything to be squeaky clean. That's right, James. So around 1.6 million cleaners are back at work since lockdown, scrubbing every inch of office spaces, schools, hospitals and public spaces to make sure they're clean of coronavirus. But their jobs have become weird and futile. Not only are they cleaning spaces that sometimes are completely devoid of people over and over again, some feel that they're just doing it for show. So this week we spoke to cleaners who have been put front and centre in a campaign to convince workers and the general public that it's safe to go back to work, even though they have no idea whether what they're doing is actually enough to keep people safe. Coronavirus has basically sparked a strange world of hygiene theatre. So what exactly is going on are cleaners just going in and working in empty offices pretty much yeah so companies have basically been given really confusing guidelines that are very much open to interpretation while people have been told to go back to work from august the first there are no real set rules on how best to clean those areas to make sure that those who do return to work can do so safely some cleaners left in empty offices are simply tidying up after themselves and making sure the dust doesn't settle day after day after day and that's unlikely to change as few companies want to force people back to the office without a vaccine but government guidelines aren't helping matters either workers living in areas such as Manchester, West Yorkshire and Leicester being urged to both stay indoors and return to work at the same time. So companies are basically having to figure things out by themselves. Um, An example of good practice is Mighty, which is one of the UK's biggest facilities management companies. 
which employs around 17,000 frontline cleaners that work in train stations, office spaces and schools. The company's cleaning teams have also been based at 11 regional COVID-19 testing centres and headed up the operations to clean the NHS Nightingale Hospital in London. Their guidelines to keep the UK squeaky clean read kind of like a military operation. Mighty has distributed over 6 million pieces of PPE since March, while each of the 31,000 UK sites that Mighty has contracted to clean have been risk assessed and made COVID secure. So this includes treating over 1 million square metres of public space with a new product called Citrox Protect, which is a great name. Uh, It's equivalent to around 10,000 litres of disinfectant and they started doing this since June. More recently, as travellers return to the skies, Mighty is trialling automated cleaning robots at two major international airports. These robots work alongside specialist cleaning teams, misting a non-toxic solution through key locations within the airport. So that's, that's one of the good examples of what's going on at the moment. So the robots will keep us safe, presumably. Um, Basically. <laughs> so, I mean, this kind of assumes that people are getting coronavirus by kind of touching surfaces and, and picking the virus up that way, but that's not really proven to be the case, is it? No, so that's that's one of the big problems here. So as, as cleaners are sort of drastically wiping down all computer keyboards and trying to, you know, stop all the surfaces from getting in any way cruddy, these, these great ideas for, you know, amazingly great disinfectants simply might not work. So the CDC has suggested that the primary way the virus is spreading is not through touching an infected surface, but through air. So sanitising surfaces and washing hands still remain important, but an overt emphasis on ridding all surfaces of contamination can distract from the more effective ways to combat COVID-19. So for businesses reopening after lockdown, that could mean prioritising the compulsory wearing of masks, opening satellite offices to avoid people from going into really big crowded parts of the city, or investing in workplace infrastructure that allow employees to work from home for the longer term. We've seen a lot of weird stuff during this pandemic, and one of the people that we spoke to for this story uh, gave a little picture of what their day-to-day is like. They were a cleaner at a school, I think, and uh, they explained that their day-to-day was going in, tidying up a bit, throwing away anything that they hadn't noticed um, before, like a mouldy sandwich or whatever, and, and then sitting very, very still and not touching anything, because anything they touch, they then have to clean. Exactly. But other than that, there, there wasn't a whole lot to do. So what's the point in all of this hygiene theatre? Is it to persuade us to return to work? Yeah, that's basically it. So at the moment, no one wants to come back because they're afraid of getting the virus, which is completely logical. So in this article, we talked about a survey which was conducted by Theta Financial Reporting, which found 57% of UK workers said they would not be be comfortable returning to a normal working life. In Birmingham, return to work calls were ignored um, as Colmore Business District, which is normally home to 35,000 workers, lied completely deserted. Companies such as Google and NatWest Group are allowing workers to stay at home until 2021 at least and and so a lot of cleaning companies have sort of been left a little bit you know, not knowing what to do. So they've had to think outside the box uh, to to kind of make people more comfortable, make them feel free to make a decision to return to their workplace if they want to. So a good example in this piece was this guy called Jake Anthony, who's the owner of City Cleaning Specialists. He mainly used to clean windows, but during the pandemic, um, all of his clients disappeared. No one wanted their windows cleaned uh, during lockdown. So with little to do, he put on a hazmat suit and wellies, and spent weeks sanitising benches and bus stops around his home city of Southampton free of charge. And this has kind of led him to um, be recruited by several restaurants and bars who have reopened since lockdown measures have lifted. And basically he was saying that the most of his clients opt for a deep clean and sanitisation once a week, which he believes helps to reassure staff and acts as a unique form of post-COVID advertisement. He said it's nice for customers to see us and sign outside a restaurant that says that it's been sanitised because it makes customers feel more confident. Now the same thing applies to offices. So if even though... <laughs> All of these cleaning measures might make no sense and might make no difference whatsoever to you getting or not getting the virus, especially if someone that's your colleague coughs in your face because they're not wearing a mask. It still will give people a little bit of more security than knowing that your office hasn't been cleaned for four months and you're walking into, you know, somewhere that might not be um, taken into seriousness into into their cleaning. So it's it's not the, the, the problem here is that it's not all good news. So. Although this is an element of 
theatric, sort of theatrics, which is why people are calling it hygiene theatre. A lot of companies are not taking this seriously at all. So you can clean, like Mighty and, and this other guy have been cleaning um, voluntarily and doing things right. But a lot of companies have decided to kind of literally make it into a show. So we spoke to cleaners that said they were told to only wear PPE when they were faced with an inspection, who claimed that managers were making up um, different ways that they should clean and what they should do and how they should clean. And they were told to say that they didn't want to wear protective equipment if anyone asked them. So you've got a very clear distinction between companies who are trying their best to do something, or at least we seem to be doing something, versus companies who are basically saying, just look like you're wiping down that table. And if anyone asks any questions, you've been cleaning. And that's the end of that. So yeah, this is the situation we're in at the moment. <laughs> I had a very strange real-world example of this on uh, on holiday last week when uh, I went to uh, a, a zoo of sorts, sort of a, a petting farm thing, and uh, there was a children's play area, and lined up around the perimeter of the children's play area were members of staff in sort of, ha- not hazmat suits, but near enough, with bottles of disinfectant, and every time a child got off a piece of equipment, they ran up to it, sprayed it, wiped it, and then moved back to a safe distance. It was really really strange it felt nice that they were doing something to take it seriously um but what felt like it might have been more helpful was a better one-way flow for people to avoid people getting too close to each other so they've kind of done part of the theater but not all of it i don't know if anyone here as they've got out into the world has seen any other strange examples of companies or businesses putting in place new practices that don't make a whole lot of sense it's things that don't make sense all the time i went to the first restaurant since lockdown when i was on holiday in rye um last weekend and the the person serving us said that she couldn't pour the glass of like a glass of wine because that was against the rules but she handed us our cutlery do you see what i mean and i I was like wait a second so you can hand us the cutlery but you can't touch the bottle but you did bring the bottle and you touch the glasses. The whole thing just made... I, I didn't really understand any of the, the kind of... And she was standing really close by and she wasn't wearing a mask and we were indoors. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> I didn't really get the logic of it, to be honest. No, I think the lack of clear guidance, as we've seen in the UK, of varying degrees of local lockdown, what you can and cannot do, what's good advice and what's bad advice... There's so much information out there that making sense of it is hard enough for individuals, let alone businesses that are frantically trying to make some money so that they can remain viable. Um, It's a really interesting glimpse into how weird the world still is. I recommend you all go and read it. We'll include a link in the show notes as we do with everything that we talk about on the podcast this week. And you can get in touch with us to let us know how you're experiencing this strange security health theatre podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else we talked about on the show this week which brings us on to amit mcnuggets yeah yes my favorite topic yet again uh this week saw the much anticipated launch of the government's eat out to help out scheme uh, for our non-uk listeners this is a promotion that's being bankrolled by the british government to try and get people eating at restaurants again after they were obviously badly hit by enforced closures during the lockdown. So the scheme offers 50% off food and non-alcoholic drinks uh, capped at a £10 discount per person, but only if you dine in in the restaurant itself rather than doing a takeaway or delivery. And then restaurants can then claim that money back from the government uh, within five working days. So initially, um, reports suggested that restaurants were reluctant to sign up to this scheme, but a huge number have now signed up. um, And it's available kind of everywhere from sort of high-end restaurants in Soho and central London to, you know, your work canteen. Um, A survey of business leaders by UK Hospitality from last week suggests that 84% of restaurants are taking part in at least some of their locations. Uh, It's only on Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays in August is the other key thing. So it's only running for this kind of limited uh, time period. Um, And it obviously started on Monday this week. so I've uh, I've done my patriotic duty and I I've eaten out to help out. Have you guys uh have you guys been out this week? No. No. <laughs> I Where actually did you go, Amit? <laughs> I did try to eat out to help out this week. Um last night in fact, but um I all the places around me were really busy. They so I gather it must be successful at least in my area uh, I was struggling to find a table anywhere. Um I ended up going to a local brewery and having a beer, but as you know Amit, alcoholic beverages are not cu- not included in the government meal deal so uh, i wasn't able to enjoy the uh the, the discount there 
How yeah. was your um, eat out to help out experience, Anna? Yeah, it was good. We 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 were originally going to try and go somewhere like fancy, but all the fancy places were like booked up for the whole of August on on those days. So we ended up going to uh, a Chinese restaurant near Waterloo called Culture, which is like one of my favourite places uh, in London because it's like super cheap and like the staff are just like unbelievably rude. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we went there uh, and you know got sixteen pounds off our meal courtesy of the government. Uh, so that was good. Uh, yeah, enjoyed it. So will this actually have an impact on people, how much people go out to, to eat or what they order or how much they eat? Like, do we know if it's, you know, if it's going to work really as the government intended it to? Yeah. Yeah. So this is the kind of thing I was interested in. I was kind of interested in like what the sort of psychological impact of like a national discount would be on, on the way people behave. Uh, and research kind of suggests that, yeah, people will, you know, people that are taking up this offer will order more food than they otherwise would have, which has obviously got like a knock on effect on you know, uh, their diet, their health, and also like kind of food waste. Um, so eat out to help out might not be enough to kind of encourage people that are kind of scared to go out to return to restaurants. But for people that do, it's likely to spark a bonanza of appetizers and unnecessary side dishes. Um, so I spoke to Kelly Hawes, who is a professor of marketing and consumer psychology at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. Uh, and she says that her research suggests that the scheme will make people more indulgent. So Obviously, there's the financial side of it. So if things are cheaper, you're going to order things that you wouldn't have otherwise done so. Um, secondly, because it's all kind of, um, it's been framed as the kind of like, you know, you're doing your bit for the economy. It's, it kind of gives you like a moral license to indulge. So if ordinarily you'd be like, okay, well, I won't get ice cream for dessert because, you know, uh, I'm worried about my health. You might be like, well, I'm doing my bit for, you know, the economy. I'm, I'm helping out. Uh, I'm I'm doing my part, uh, you know, like, during the second world war or whatever by by getting chicken wings as a side you are you know helping helping great britain get back on her feet <laughs> um and then the final thing is like uh because people are kind of going back to restaurants for the first time in months in many cases you know the last time people went out to eat would have been you know march maybe for a lot of the people um the, the meals will kind of feel a bit more like a special occasion than they ordinarily would. So, you know, a, a Tuesday night dinner at like Pizza Express uh, might not have felt that special beforehand. But now because it's the first time you've been to a restaurant for months, you know, it might feel more like a special occasion and you might be more likely to order, you know, some dough balls or, or whatever to, to go with your meal. Uh, so this was all this was all kind of reporting that I did last week before the the scheme started and then this seems to have been backed up by reports this week showing as as you said Vicky like long queues outside restaurants restaurants being booked out um you can't get a table at like Hawksmoor or Deschamps or any other kind of like popular places in central London um there were even queues outside like Wagamama and places like that in in, in some towns in the UK um according to the sun uh take this with a pinch of salt but according to the sun some diners were ordering double meals on the scheme and really like maximizing their their uh, £10 discount um, and restaurants have started changing their menus up as well to try and maximise the benefits of eat out to help out so they're kind of doing deals that you know you can get X amount of food for £10 or whatever so you, you kind of maximise out um, so Hawksmoor for example the steak restaurant uh, created a new kind of menu option that kind of lets you dine out for a, dine in sorry for £10 um, by incorporating both the eat out to help out discount and the VAT cut that came in recently. And so at the start of this crisis, a lot of independently run restaurants were saying, you know, we can't cope. Uh, We we obviously, you know, aren't seeing a way ahead, etc. I'm just wondering, because I mean, when when you think about the kind of brands that are offering the Eat Out to Help Out, it's it's chains, isn't it? It's a lot of chains, a lot of big brands. I mean, who exactly is gaining from this um, initiative? Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of the cynically, a lot of the the companies that stand to gain the most from this will be the big chains that probably aren't in that much trouble. Although having said that, Pizza Express recently announced, you know, a thousand job losses and like the closure of loads of restaurants. So they are also struggling and they do employ people as much as, you know, um, independent restaurants do. Um, but yeah, some of the people I spoke to suggest that because the discount is capped at, at £10, it could disproportionately favour restaurants with lower price points. So if your meal costs less than £10 and the government, you know, you get the maximum effect of that 50% discount. Um, and what you're essentially doing is you end up subsidising the kind of least healthy area of the market, according to Aaron Allen, who's a, a restaurant consultant that I spoke to. So um, if you look at McDonald's, for example, you know you can get now get a Big Mac meal for like two pound thirty, um, whereas obviously you know in a in a higher end restaurant that that discount won't be quite as as, as sharp. Um, some some kind of suggested that like the 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 kind of fancier places wouldn't want to be associated with this because it's quite a 
I don't know, it's, it's obviously like a discount scheme doesn't necessarily like mesh with the sort of uh, image that, you know, a, a, a sort of high-end five-star or a Michelin-star restaurant might want to show. You know, it's essentially a government-sponsored Groupon is how one person described it to me. Um, and also, you know, because um, there is still like a red tape and, you know, there's some, you know, the government hasn't exactly been knocking out the park lately. So, you know, there's some concern over whether actually if I give this discount to a bunch of customers, am I going to be able to get that money back? Uh, and at a time when restaurants aren't exactly cash rich, you know, their cash flow is really tricky. Are they willing to kind of take the gamble that the scheme will work as intended and that they will actually get their money reimbursed after five days? If you'd have told me in January that the Chancellor of the United Kingdom would stand up and announce essentially a meal deal scheme uh, that was going to be backed by the Treasury, um, well, you'd, you'd have had to have done some fairly creative thinking to come up with that idea, and it would have sounded like a bad idea. And even now it's been implemented. There's there's criticism of it. At the time when it was announced, it came out that the Chancellor had effectively had to force this through um, because uh, it wasn't properly costed. Um, it, it's essentially a, a big marketing campaign that's backed by the public purse. And there's also criticisms that why is the government putting so much money behind something that allows people who can already afford to go out and eat a meal when there are plenty of people who are still relying on food banks or struggling to make rent or have been let out um, let down by the furlough scheme. So it sounds like a, a great patriotic idea, eat out to help out, but isn't it just a bit of a bad idea? Yeah, I think, it, like, I think if you look at it really narrowly, uh, it's kind of been designed, you know, it, it's been, it's a scheme that's been designed to help the struggling hospitality industry. And, you know, restaurants certainly need help. The the, the industry is like four trillion pounds or four trillion dollars globally. And, you know, it, it counts for like quite a significant percentage of GDP in a lot of countries. Um, the, the restaurant consultant I spoke to uh, estimates that one in five uh, restaurants worldwide won't make it through the pandemic, you know, that they'll close. Um, but, you know, so it might work, you know, and it seems to be seems to be having the intended effect. But that's only if you look at it really narrowly. And you have to kind of question whether, A, it's going to get people going to restaurants who wouldn't have gone to wouldn't have gone to restaurants otherwise. Or are people just going to go on a Wednesday instead of a Friday now? Like how much of an impact is it going to have? You know, like I went out last night, but I probably would have gone out, uh, you know, on a Thursday or Friday instead. And we decided to go out on Wednesday I'm not, I'm not now going to again go out, you know, it's not an additional meal that I'm buying. It's just, you know, maybe I, maybe I ordered more than I would have otherwise, but you know, I don't know if that's going to be a net gain overall. Um, and then the other thing is, yeah, so even if it does work and it does get people going back to restaurants, the question is whether it's a good use of public funds, you know, the scheme has come under some criticism for being a waste of money. Obviously it clashes with the government's kind of recently announced anti-obesity drive, um, which is kind of around, you know, stopping the advertising of fast food. Uh, in certain locations, even even online before 9pm. Uh, it's kind of hard to, to square the government saying, on the one hand, you know, you need to eat more healthy to protect the NHS. On the other hand, saying, you know, you can get 20 McNuggets for two quid. It's quite, you know, difficult to square that. Um, and yeah, James, as you said, it's, it's kind of hard to justify using taxpayer money to essentially subsidise people who already have the means to eat out at restaurants, um, particularly when a lot of people have lost their jobs and, and thousands of people are going to lose their jobs when the furlough scheme ends. Um, the optics of this aren't great. So um, health secretary or former health secretary Jeremy Hunt um, got some stick for uh, tweeting a picture of his receipt showing the discount that he'd got. I think he had five people with him. So he got a £50 discount. Um, and, and some people were pointing out that, you know, uh, billionaire Rishi Sunak, uh, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer, was essentially using public money to subsidise a meal out for his millionaire colleague. And it's not a great look when you consider this is all tax money. Um but then, on the other hand, I don't know, you could make the argument that it's it's more about, it's not about just propping up the hospitality industry, it's about kind of inspiring public confidence more widely. And, you know, actually, if you see these pictures of people being, if you're afraid to go out and you see all these pictures of people enjoying themselves and going out and kind of getting back to normal, you know, there could be a knock-on effect for other industries and, and that could have a, a longer term, more wider benefit. But then there's the question of whether actually we're in a position to be able to be doing that right now, you know, with cases rising again. So it's, it's this whole mess. It's a complicated issue. I'm not sure that a sort of blanket discount is necessarily the most nuanced approach. Yeah, it very much stinks. Well, stinks is probably too strong. It has the, the whiff of the government wanting to announce something to generate positive headlines and get everyone thinking that things are all OK when actually 
the economy um, and society is in a pretty bad shape as a result of this pandemic and people being able to get a discount pub lunch, um, especially those that could afford to pay full whack for that pub lunch, is uh, a slightly strange policy. But we've seen versions of this in in other countries, particularly around tourism, um, vouchers encouraging people to go and travel and visit other parts of of their country and to help stimulate the economy. So the UK isn't an outlier here. Countries are coming at this in a variety of ways to try and do something to stimulate the economy. It would be interesting to hear what our international listenership thinks. Podcast at wired.co.uk. What schemes are in place in your part of the world to encourage people to get out and spend money or is it just a plain bad idea to be encouraging people to go out and spend money should the government be looking to more heavily subsidize employees and businesses to uh, allow them to not open and the um, and countries to remain safer for longer a podcast at wired.co.uk time for one of your emails before we finish the show for this week. It comes from Marcus, who asked for our thoughts on New Zealand. Um, He says that uh, New Zealand, while it has nailed it, might it be setting itself up for future problems? So there's talk there, he says, of some doctors and nurses worried about herd naivety um, and that having a country that goes through such a long period of not having the virus might mean that it doesn't put in place proper measures to deal with the virus when it comes back. It's certainly an interesting provocation, but I think what we've seen from countries that are now seeing a much lower rate of coronavirus in Europe is that it's giving them time to put in place better measures for when seemingly inevitably, as we're seeing in in some countries, the virus does start to come back and and cases creep up and up and up. So in New Zealand, they're buying themselves an awful lot of time where they don't have to worry about soaring numbers of cases to put in place infrastructure. And while people might forget and return to a normal way of life while it is the only country in the world that is at COVID zero or one of the few countries in the world at COVID zero. You've got to think that the second that an inkling of coronavirus comes back to a country that very successfully squashed it, there will be a high level of public obedience to make sure that it doesn't come back again, particularly as they'll be able to start from a very, very low base of infections. Whereas what we're seeing in the UK and other countries that are imposing local lockdowns is a real confusion as to how you should behave, how local authorities should react. So it's much easier to be a New Zealand in this situation than it is to be a United Kingdom. Uh, Thanks very much for your email, Marcus. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Please do get in touch. We love hearing from you and we'll read out a selection of your correspondence on each and every show. That just about does it for us this week. Thank you so much as ever for listening and we'll see you again same time next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.